1: Just like riding a bicycle, the easiest way to take over Manchester United would probably be to just keep it going downhill. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elit Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Yeah, that's right. Um, Ineos taking over Manchester United, and they have a lot of cycling experience. And look, there's a mountain to climb at Manchester United. And let's face it, the mountain stages are the hardest stages uh, when you're in cycling. The easiest part is going downhill. So I would suggest to them to just keep the club going downhill. Yeah, uh, we're going to be talking Ineos. We're going to be talking Ratcliffe. We're going to be talking David Brailsford, a little bit of Jean-Claude Blanc today to understand the future of United and uh, whether they will get back to competing at the absolute highest level or continue uh, to exist as they do now as one of the clown cars of English football, which I have to say as an Arsenal supporter, I am enjoying. But will that be the case going forward? We're going to find out. Um, I do want to let you know that, of course, we have instant reactions. We did a rewatch of the Liverpool game over on Patreon, as you know. Uh, We have the main pod coming up. It's hard for me to record this intro because, depending on when you listen to this, you will have not yet seen the West Ham game, already seen the West Ham game, not yet seen the Fulham game, already seen the Fulham game, celebrated New Year, not celebrated New Year's, who knows? So I don't know what to say to you other than... uh, a really exciting win over West Ham and Fulham and Happy New Year. Or if none of that has happened, then I hope those things happen. <laughs> um, I think we can leave the awkward introduction there. Okay, really exciting opportunity to welcome someone back on the pod who has not been on in a very long time, um, partly due to my omission and partly due to, uh, you know, the topic that he tends to cover, not being my total lack of credentials, (laughs) due to a lack of credentials, a lack of anyone having interest. No, I'm kidding. Due to (laughs) primarily, uh, his area of expertise, not intersecting with the arsenal, uh, in any specific way, but this is going to be great because we're going to talk to Daniel Friba, who is a couple of things. He hosts the cycling podcast, which is a cycling podcast you should listen to. He's one of the most experienced, well-respected British journalists that covered cycling. Um, he has written a number of books. The latest one, I believe, is Jan Ulrich, The Best That Never Was. And he's been on the podcast before, so you may recognize him. But one of the great things about having Daniel on is that we get a chance to talk a little bit about Manchester United. Now, sadly, this will not be a schadenfreude podcast. We will not be here to laugh at them specifically. It might be. But he it obviously, <laughs> I mean, maybe a bit. Yeah. He obviously is <laughs> the background on this, let's say, acquiring in quotes in inverted commas group uh Jim Ratcliffe's group and the people associated with it who are taking board seats now and that will be Dave Brailsford and Jean-Claude Blanc so we're going to talk about Brailsford I'm guessing a lot and Ratcliffe and Ineos and and what we can expect from an Ineos um Manchester United or an a uh, Manchester United run at the footballing level by Ineos so long introduction haven't even introduced him yet. You've heard his voice, but he hasn't been properly introduced. So now, Daniel, pleasure to talk to you.
2: Pleasure to talk to you, Elliot.
1: Um, first things first, you are yes. a, a huge Arsenal supporter as well. So how are you enjoying um, Arsenal? I, I would say top. We're not top as we sit, sit and record this prior to the West Ham game. We were top at Christmas. So how are you enjoying this season versus last season so far?
2: I'm enjoying it, Elliot, but I don't know whether enjoying is the right word because I find it angst-ridden. I, I knew... Um, I knew deep down that it was going to be angst-ridden uh, at the start of the season. I felt that there was a sense of expectation and maybe even an entitlement on the part of the fans that might not be fulfilled. And uh, I've, I suppose my fears have been allayed on that score. But before we started recording, we were talking about refereeing. And I feel that some of that kind of sense of what well, that angst and anxiety surrounding the out- outcome of the season has been mainly manifested through the scrutiny of referees and the hand-wringing about referees. And um, it's, it's a little bit unfortunate, and it's taken a little bit of the enjoyment away from me. I, I think the enjoyment is still there as long as I don't spend too much time on social media.
1: Yeah, um, well, <clears throat> that is a, a guidebook for life generally I it think It is. You could it doesn't just <laughs> have to be about is. the football. Um, yeah, I, I think basically the way you could summarize it, right, is that last season everything felt like, a gift, a surprise, mm. um, a bonus. We wanted top exactly. four. We were competing for the league. We're on a hundred point pace, and so it all just felt like a welcome surprise this season with a bit of more expectation. Uh, the arrival of a, a hundred million pound plus signing in Declan Rice, who has uh, looked like a bargain. Obviously, there's a little more expectancy, and that means that there's going to be a little more angst. And by the way, ideally, you want to be in a world where there's expectancy in the Arsenal fan base for trophies and titles and things like that. Because if there isn't, that means we've fallen way off. So this feels more like a uh, standard operating procedure. But a club that has fallen way off, way, way off, is Manchester United. Um, they were the benefactor of Unai going full Unai and turtle shelling in the second half the other day. But not a good season in not a good several seasons, decade, you might even say, for Manchester United, have really struggled. To find any kind of sporting identity uh, since Ferguson left. And now uh, the Glazers have sold a portion of their ownership in Manchester United to Ineos. Am I saying that right, by the way? I, it occurs Ineos, to me. On the yeah. Ineos, yes. yep. Um, and the interesting thing about this acquisition is while it is only a partial acquisition, it gives Ineos, full, as I understand it, full control of the footballing responsibilities at Manchester United. They have appointed Two board seats to the footballing board. There's a PLC board, different appointees there, but that would be Dave Brailsford and Jean-Claude Blanc. So let's start off with Ineos overall. Ineos um was associated with uh Sky or, uh, Team GB cycling. Ineos was also uh, owns OGC Nice and Lausanne in the Swiss League. Um, so maybe a little multi-club model thing that we can be talking there. Why don't you start out maybe by correcting the errors I've already made in this. <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> and, and then, because uh, uh, I I think I got the cycling bit wrong there. That's okay. That's why you're here. And then uh, a little bit of what their track record has been in cycling in terms of performance and management and what their approach has been.
2: Okay, um, Elliot. So on the cycling front, um, a lot of the listeners will be familiar with Team Sky, what Team Sky represented. They were the first major British team in elite professional cycling, road cycling. And Ineos replaced Sky as the main sponsor of that team in the spring of 2019, (laughs) if I'm not mistaken. And 2019 was also when Ineos bought OGC Nice. Why Nice? Partly because Jim Ratcliffe, who, uh, again, I think a lot of, a lot of the listeners will know is one of the richest men in the United Kingdom. I think the second richest at last count. Um, He has lived on the Cote d'Azur. He's a a renowned, noted sort of Brexiteer, um, and perversely, um, has lived on the Cote d'Azur, has had property on the Cote d'Azur for a long time. Um, so he bought Nice in 2019 and, um, why cycling? Jim Ratcliffe has a, or he has a long-standing personal sort of passion for cycling. So did his sons. Um, so that was why he was interested in professional cycling. And as far as the other sort of um, prongs to this INEOS network are concerned. They've also got an association with the All Blacks in rugby, um, mm. Mercedes Formula One team as well, sailing, America's Cup, that that kind of thing. And I suppose one of the, the questions that we were faced with immediately when, well, w- when, as sort of cycling media we first found out that Ineos were interested in taking over from team skies the sponsor was why why was jim radcliffe and why were Ineos as a company interested in this endeavor and um i I suppose four years later we're still not entirely sure and a lot of people talked about sport washing green washing initially because this is a company it's a sort of petrochemicals plastics company um he's a big advocate of Fracking has been, and people wondered whether this was about greenwashing. Now, where that falls down slightly is that Ineos is and was a company that's always tried conspicuously to stay out of the spotlight. Precisely because they didn't want to draw attention to too many of too many of the, their more mm. sort of questionable activities. So it probably wasn't about that. And Jim Radcliffe, well, then when he took on Team Sky, um, he was in his late sixties. And what we sort of settled on, most of us settled on, was this was the idea that it was some kind of vanity project. Um, and and he was pursuing all of his sporting passions. And behind it all was the idea, the conviction. Partly, I think, that fueled by concocted with Dave Brailsford that by combining the knowledge across all of these, sort of in all of these buckets, rugby, football, cycling, sailing, and so on and so on, you could come up with something magical. Um, they, or Brailsford has referred to it as this cross-pollination of of ideas or through ideas um, across all of these, um, as I say, different projects. And, um, you know, it's yielded some remarkable results um Elliot Kipchoge sort of exhibition sub two-hour marathon in Vienna I think it was about three years ago now that was an, an INEOS project a lot of sports science behind that um but there have been other areas in which the INEOS project has been less successful for example OGC Nice um they've turned things around this year, um, they've got a young Italian manager who's quite a left-field choice, an interesting choice, and then currently second in League R. But the three years prior to that were, were not great. I think, I think they finished ninth, fifth, and ninth. So in football mm. thus far, um, I mean, those are the sort of bare bones of how they've done. We can talk maybe in a minute anecdotally about what people have said about that operation. Um, but that's not gone so well. And interestingly, at the same time, so I said... They came on board with the cycling team in 2019. Now Team Sky had um, they had this historic period of success, first British team, and they'd won um, seven Tours de France with four different riders over a decade or less than a decade. In fact, Ineos came on board in 2019. They won that year's Tour de France, and since then, most people in cycling would say the organisation has been in dec- in decay. Cool. Um, they have been a lot less successful, culminating in this year when with Brailsford now very much more involved with Nice and what was going on with the United bid, um, it all sort of got very, very messy indeed with um, their whole recruitment Policy baffling everyone in cycling, having to be torn up, um, mm-hmm. redrawn, and um, for um, sort of having one foot in the team, one foot out, parachuting back in, um, again, ripping up all the plans, and it all got very, very messy.
1: Maybe so that's, maybe that's why they acquired United, because it fits perfectly, that experience. <laughs> oh, they just go. want to there reproduce that experience at United. Perfect, okay. There you go. So, okay, well, so... That's a good foundation. I think there are there are two interesting players here in Blanc and Brailsford. Um, the I'll set aside the multi club model thing, but certainly there is a question here of whether this will lead to some of the multi club model approach that we've seen at places like Chelsea and Manchester mm-hmm. City. Um, you know, and and that is that is an advantage that we're seeing some of these ownership groups starting to use as leverage um, in the market. Uh, something that I I sort of wonder if we'll see Arsenal do in in some ways down the road. But let's talk Brailsford because he, I guess, made a name for himself uh, with the cycling team and with this marginal gains idea, right? The, the 1% um, factor of trying to get these marginal gains and improve every little area of performance a little bit and measuring it and making it better and... He, I guess, he became something of sort of a mainstream hit as a result of what he mm. achieved with Team GB. How's his career arc gone, and that that philosophy has that evolved? Do we know what his philosophy might be around that performance model within football?
2: Elliot, well, to go back to sort of right to the start of his career. Um, I mean, he was someone who was a, he was a kind of an amateur cyclist, and then he started working for a, a wheel manufacturer um, in the UK. And then somehow he was sort of export manager for this wheel manufacturer. Um, he'd done a degree in sport and exercise sciences at the university Hmm. of Chester prior to that, but somehow through contacts in cycling, he uh, became a consultant for British cycling, the federation, bear in mind that cycling in Britain in the late nineties was very much, it wasn't a second tier, a third tier sport. It was a fourth tier sport. So, Hmm. I mean, if you were being unkind, you would say that anyone working for the sort of cycling federation, British Cycling Federation, was a kind of a glorified leisure centre manager. Anyway, he came on board just at the point where this plan was hatched to use lottery money, which was tied, was heavily tied to Olympic success and world championship success. Um, they sort of realised that British Cycling, that if they concentrated on track cycling, which not many countries were doing, they could have a lot of success and then according to the lottery funding model they would then be very very well funded and they could get better and better and better and over the course of sort of three four olympic cycles this is what happened he became performance director of um, british cycling and in athens they swept all before them in on the track same again in beijing and they were so successful that whether through sort of hubris or um, I suppose just a natural ambition, natural drive that he had, they hatched this plan to transfer that to road cycling. Um, mm. Road cycling is, you know, it, it, I mean, it's the, the Holy Grail in, in cycling is the Tour de France. Um, it's, kind of professional very much professional sport whereas track cycling is not in most places in the world so that was maybe an obvious step to take and at the same time they had these a few young british riders that they'd sort of um they they kind of cultivated on the track who they thought could make it on the road so team sky was then born in 2010 with this with this mantra, as you said, the marginal gains mantra, it's something that's been attached and sort of stuck to Brailsford. He said on numerous occasions he wishes he'd never said it. It wasn't the whole it wasn't the whole ethos, but it's certainly what people retain. I mean I've got a quote in front of me and he said the whole principle came from the idea that if you broke down everything you could um, that goes into riding a bike then improve it by one percent you'll get a significant increase when you put them all together so that was that was one aspect of it the other The other big thing I think to understand is that in professional cycling on the road had been ravaged by doping and there were a couple of substances or methods in particular EPO and blood doping, which gave people huge, huge advantages and this sort of culminated around you know two thousand and seven two thousand eight it was so bad that it looked as though the sport might not continue. it had been mm. absolutely endemic for. Couple of decades before that, however, there was a sort of come to Jesus moment for the whole sport um, when Lance Armstrong retired, and people realised this couldn't go on because we were going to the Tour de France and riders were getting yanked out of the race by police, and, and there were wailing sirens, and it was um, it was just a disaster movie. So the whole sport had um, a bit of a reckoning, and and. It, 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 they started to clean up their act effectively, everyone, the teams the riders, the federations the media, we started putting a lot of pressure on and the, the oil tanker did start to turn around However, that it left a, a bit of a void a bit of a vacuum in the sense that these two, these big performance enhancement methods EPO and blood transfusion were kind of off the table this is when Brailsford came in from the track and on on the track for years they've been working on eking out the tiniest advantages from aerodynamics diet physiology and so on and so forth and he found himself in 2010 2011 with an environment that was ripe for someone to bring that know-how and basically replace the sort of gains that people had been getting from this this industrial doping with with legal methods Mm. and this was definitely a part of their success so within a year or two they started well they became very successful the other huge part of their success was financial doping Um, they were by far the most well-funded team and this obviously facilitated a lot of this marginal gains Sort of ethos. So you know, you would go to races, and they would have double the vehicles that other teams had. They would mm-hmm. have you know double the num- m- members of staff, and this was all important. You know, it, it played out on a on a micro level. There would be important stages in the biggest races in the tour where they would have ten guys standing on the route able to you know who were who were handing out food to the riders when other teams only had two and three and this all sort of then had an impact on the on the results but broadly speaking they became incredibly successful and you know they became envied they became copied they changed the sport in a lot of ways they became disliked and partly because of just the way they carried themselves they appeared with this sort of black kit they immediately they made no bones about the fact that they knew better than every other team and they knew better than the sort of cycling establishment that had been doing things a certain way for many many years so they they were not very popular outside of the United Kingdom. And um, and and Brailsford mm. um, himself, I mean, he has this sort of air about him. He's quite slick. He's a good talker, but he, there's a bit of the sort of David Brents about him, if you were to be unkind. Um, and he can appear quite arrogant uh, at times. And then there was a th- another sort of element to their unpopularity, which was the dope, the specter of sort of doping questions, which came yep. kind of back in, in this, in this sort of second half of the, of the 20 teens as well. Um, I don't know if you want to pause there and maybe you yeah. to ask me about it, that.
1: Well, it's a lot. I mean, obviously the it's impossible to get away from any discussion of doping when you're talking about cycling success. Mm. Um, unfortunately I, I think What I hear, though, is that this was a person who was driven to succeed at the sporting level and used whatever advantages he could find, even if those advantages were at the margins in terms of legality or ethics, to drive his organizations that he oversaw onto success. And so rather than bogging down too much in the ethics of what he did or the controversy around what he did. I, I think what I'd like to ask you is, would you regard the way he he's operated in these environments as demonstrating a, a sort of savvy, a sophistication in understanding where there were opportunities to exploit advantages that he can reproduce because United do have certain advantages, the size of the club, their economic wealth, mm-hmm. the, the reputation of the club, you know, some of their financial or um, marketing capabilities. Is he someone who will exploit at the very margins every advantage an organization has, even potentially beyond the edge of, of what's acceptable? Or was he someone who simply had an ability to, I guess, break the rules or outperform his competition through advantages that maybe United don't have vis-a-vis like, The money city have, and and the marketing Mm. might of some of the other clubs coming up. What what are we? What are the sort of bull cases and bear cases in terms of his how he will oversee football at United based on how he he ran some of these other organizations.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, first of all, on the ethics, um, just I mean, it's just worth touching on um, just for a few, yeah. few seconds. You you will you will hear um, over the next few months, maybe a few years, um, as long as he's involved with Manchester United, you'll you'll hear kind of people sort of sneering and referring to this jiffy bag case. I mean, you've pro- probably even me saying that probably jogs your memory, um, even if you don't follow professional cycling closely. Um, you know, there, there was talk of this abuse of the TUE therapeutic use exemption Mm -hmm. system, um, whereby basically um, team sky were allegedly saying riders were ill so that they could take certain medicines when in fact they were not. And then there was this one, there was a particular incident with a a jiffy bag. No one has ever really established what it contained, this jiffy bag, but this was seen as sort of symptomatic of the team cheating. Now Mm -hmm. it was, it, it's it's a lot more nuanced than that, and and I gave a bit of context about the EPO and the blood doping because for for those of us who covered the sport before and have covered it since, what Team Sky did it was a bit like you know Bernie Bernie Madoff s- s- sort of seeing the error of his ways and then starting to slightly fiddle his expenses on his tax return. I mean, it seemed it seemed small fry compared to what had gone before. However, there are people who will say that Brailsford and Team Sky um, acted completely unethically and they should be, um, you know, they're not much better than Lance Armstrong. I don't subscribe to that. However, what I would say that is important to remember, when you hear people sort of, you know, snarking and sneering about the jiffy bag, it is much more complex than that. And you really need need to go back and and read the whole story of what actually happened. Um, However, to your point, how sort of transferable is it to, to football? What will he do? I mean, yeah, you know, I was talking to a journalist that's covering this story closely who works more on the football side earlier today. And, and and the sort of question I kept coming back to was this idea of sort of pioneers, people who um, kind of really blaze a trail and reinvent a paradigm. Can they do it twice um, in the course of a professional career? Is Is that possible? Because do they become so tethered to their the ideas that have made them successful, that those ideas themselves then become calcified and an old hat. Um, and, and I think that's that's probably legitimate to ask uh, about Brailsford. Um, you know, it's interesting, you talk to people in football about this idea of, well, marginal gain, sports science, you know, where it sits um, compared to, for example, professional cycling. I was talking to someone else today about, well, someone who works on the sort of medical side in football and he was saying that you know if there has been a paradigm shift over the last three or four years probably in professional football it's the amount of of time that's now spent sort of so to speak in the classroom um players uh, and i know at arsenal this is definitely the case you know spending hours and hours in i think we've seen them on the amazon prime documentary um in front of a whiteboard and doing a lot of an awful lot of learning um, and that's definitely an area in which football is changing a lot. Whereas once upon a time, they might talk about tactics for two minutes in the course of a, of a training session with everyone getting cold and so on and so forth. So that's something that's changed. Um, but uh, you know, I don't think Browsford can necessarily bring anything that's going to change um well it's really going to be game changing directly from cycling or directly even from any of the other buckets that INEOS are involved with um and you know they wouldn't be the the only team the only organization attempting this this um sort of cross-pollination um through different sports I mean that there are a lot of sort of physiologists who work in one sport, then go to another sport, then end up in football and so on and so forth. So I don't think that's going to be a panacea. Um, what he will be is, is ruthless. Um, that's mm. a through line in his career. You know, uh, anecdotally you heard stories about him sort of in meetings saying, well, how long so-and-so been with us three years? Well, that's too long. Get rid of them. Um, regardless of whether, you know, of how well that person was doing their job. You've heard stories like that. So I think, you know, by all accounts, what little we know about what's going on at Man United, I think that's probably needed, isn't it? Um, A bit of ruthlessness. I think, don't be surprised if you start to see some of that. Um, He will, you know, we also, the infamous sort of interview with um, Ronaldo and Piers Morgan um, when he talked about the training ground and the facilities there, that is Dave Brails down to a T. You, I guarantee six months from now or a year from now, you will read an article. Probably I can almost see the tweet from the athletic with mm-hmm. bullet points, um, you know, about how ice baths have been installed in every room at Carrington, including the groundsman's tool shed, <laughs> you know, Himalayan goatskin bonquettes in the <laughs> players canteen. Um, that will that will happen um definitely and um beyond that you know i guess he he was heavily involved with nice for the last couple of years you know he sort of drifted away from cycling and that that has followed an upward trend in the last year or so that club and i guess you know he probably needed three or four years to learn Um, and he probably has learned a bit more about some of the sort of vagaries and intricacies of of, of how people behave and how people do business in football. Um, so it, it may be that he's, he's figuring it out. Um, the INEOS organization are figuring it out. Um,
1: hmm. Yeah. I mean, but, I, I would prefer that they're not obviously. Yeah, I, mean, from a obviously. Coach, <laughs> I think there's two things, right? There's what, Manchester United need in terms of actual investment and and squad redevelopment and facilities redevelopment. They've earmarked I think 300 million pounds to start with for mm-hmm. the redevelopment of uh, Old Trafford and Carrington. So that obviously has to happen. It's going to take a lot more money than that long term, but they're they're going to get started right away as I understand it. But there's a sophistication around football that is different I would imagine from cycling. He's had some time at Nice to learn it. I think whether he's ready to step in and understand the kind of footballing organisation that united are and and the complexity of mm. of the transactions that take place there is is an open question but i think what you're expressing is that there will be a culture change and let's just talk about that mm. briefly because i think people feel that there is a sclerotic culture at at united now where you just have player power, You players doing what they want. They stop, they, they stop trying. They don't, you know, they get a manager sack. They get the next manager sacked. They're all on massive wages with seemingly not a lot of expectation to perform once they get on those wages. So from a culture standpoint, I mean, is that potentially Brailsford's biggest impact that he will make is coming in and, and changing the culture and instilling not just a desire, but a requirement to win, to perform. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a huge soft factor guy, But United have the resources to compete. It it appears that culturally they've just sort of lost that mandate to compete. So is that something that you think is going to be first and foremost for Brailsford to install?
2: Yes, um, I I definitely think so. Um, That said, what he won't be used to or or hadn't been used to until he took over at Nice and certainly the level of scrutiny and the pressure is a different level of Man United is that Mm. in football, I think there's a pressure to have an impact quickly and and have a tangible impact and um culture change i mean the very nature of it's in almost in the name culture change should take longer than that sort of four week cycle that every top premier league football club or that is kind of on i mean any mm. you know even i don't want to say michael arteta's four weeks from getting sacked but if arsenal lost every game for the next four weeks he would kind of be under pressure and mm. i think that's that's going to be a, uh, uh, that is a challenge. Um, definitely. Um, wh- whether he can affect that's, well, that that sort of tangible change. Um, you know, I think he's going to be quite removed um, in reality. There's going to be a sporting director underneath him. Um, mm. and, and Jean-Claude Blanc, who maybe we'll touch on in a minute, yes. he's going to be ab- above Brailsford. Um, so where I see his role is more of a sort of, um, this kind of Zeus figure who is in charge of precisely what we've just said, um, culture change. But, you know, just, again, talking to friends who work in football and who cover Man United, um, generally just talking about the how recruitment's happened there and uh, the this role that even Ten Hag's agent has been playing in recruitment and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I mean, these things, some of this is kind of transferable to cycling and a, a lower level, you know, there are agents and in professional cycling. In, in some cases, they have the same sort of invidious reputation that the agents in football do but um, some of that sounds quite gnarly um, at Man United and it sounds as though it will be quite difficult to untangle some of it and and Mm. that's proven to be the case at Nice again so anecdotally players who went there you know I know have said that they didn't have the impression that it was being run particularly well over the last couple of years. You know, there were some strange things that happened there over the last three or four years. Even the players that we're sort of familiar with, you know, Kasper Schmeichel was an absolute disaster there in the first year. Ramsey, um, that was a strange move and it didn't work at all. Ross Barkley and so on and so forth. So I think that there, there are signs. I mean, I actually spoke to Dave Bresford about this since I saw him at the Tour de France this summer. And we had a chat, we did an interview for ITV, but then had a chat with him off the record, and I, I sort of said to him, "Oh, Dave, you know, it must be a bit different working with footballers to working with working with cyclists." And I don't know whether he, he sort of took this as a bit of a, a backhanded, um, a sort of barbed comment to mm. sort of suggest that he was out of his depth. But he he, he, hit, he, he sort of um, recalled at this slightly, and he said, "Oh no, oh no, um, you know, there's a lot that's transferable," um, but I think there are quite significant
1: differences. I love that. I think that's a great little anecdote because that to me suggests someone who is not prepared to adapt to a situation who wants to believe that his experience is fully transferable. And, you know, for example, like the aggregation of marginal gains thing, like whether you think it's genius or whether you think it's, you know, sort of nonsense business speak, it's not going to work at United. There aren't the marginal gains. Like, you know, it's kind of like when you watch a Brentford come up through the leagues, right? There are more marginal gains you can exploit in league two than league one and, you know, there's fewer in League 1 than League 2. There's fewer in the Championship than League 1. There's fewer in the Premier League. And as you get towards the top of the Premier League, there's almost none left. It's it's mm. like Arsene Wenger, right? Arsene Wenger came in and was like, hey, you can't go out on the lash the night before a game and you have to eat healthy. Mm. And all of a sudden, you know, Arsenal were competing for doubles. Um, those marginal gains are gone in yeah. it, at the upper echelon of elite sport now. There's high performance. There's periodization. There's elite training grounds I mean you know Lester probably has one of the finest training grounds in world football and they're in the mm. championship so it's just I don't know that he's going to be able to bring that I guess a last question on him I do want to talk Blanc just briefly but will he be because you know we, we've we talked about Brailsford a lot and his mindset and I think what you've told us leaves me feeling very mixed that he will sort of demand performance and demand execution and, and, and create high standards but whether he's really qualified for this you know it would be an open question for me but will he be heavy-handed will he be directly involved I mean there will be a sporting director that will report up to Brailsford is Brailsford the kind of will he be the kind of board member where the decisions are really being made by him and the puppet strings are being pulled by him or do you think he's the kind of guy who has the ability to guide things quietly but allow the people under him to work because I think a really important thing that's happened at Arsenal is the football people are making the football decisions, but with a little bit of oversight, you know, I, I mean, I think, I don't know, you know, that Stan was ever really that involved or had that big an eye on what was happening at the club. I don't know, but it certainly feels like Josh Kroenke has been more invested and involved. And it feels like that through line from Josh Kroenke to Vinai to Edu, um, you know, has certainly helped, and obviously, Mikel having a lot of involvement. How how involved do you expect Brailsford to be? Is he a delegator or is he a meddler? Like, what, what will his management model be?
2: I don't know how instructive what's happened in the cycling team is uh, or has been over the last couple of years, because there, for example, the perception is that he he sort of has left it alone and stepped away. Only to come back and medal this year with mm, pretty disastrous consequences or um, pretty unseemly consequences. Anyway, um, you know, with 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 Man United, my sense is that this challenge appeals to his ego. Um, You know, I mean, most really successful people have an ego. He certainly does. And he's got a connection with Manchester. Again, when I spoke to him in the summer, he sort of emphasized this because that was where he was based with the British Cycling Federation. So, you know, he's lived in Manchester. Um, He he feels that this is a kind of calling for that reason as well. And I think he will be very aware of uh, this preconception that he's just a cycling bloke and um, he doesn't know anything about football, and he will want to disprove that. He'll want to confound um, the, the sort of critics on that front. Um, how much will he meddle? I mean, I don't know enough about, well, I don't know enough about how the what structure Man United have in mind, and generally how a figure like him um, would be able to influence sort of on-the-pitch affairs in professional football. Um, yeah, so I, I, guess, I, I guess that's an, an, open question. Um, you know, again, going back to Arsenal, I don't know what you feel again, not knowing the ins and outs and exactly the chain of command and, and whose influences what, but my perception from the outside is that Mikel Arteta has almost single-handedly radiated a new culture to all, mm-hmm. I, th- I think our perception is that Eddie is good at his job, that Vina is good at his job, and, S- and Stan Kroenke C- is, is is doing well because of what they've absorbed from Mikel Arteta. That is what I have sort of taken from the last sort of three or four years.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think Richard Garlick has made a difference. I think Tim Lewis has made a difference. I think Josh Cronkey's made a difference. I just think that there is more of a... I think that there is more of a sense of connectedness within Arsenal Football Club with a goal towards success that is driven on by every person operating at that at their level. You know, that, that there's joined up thinking that Mikel and Adu formulate a plan. They report it up to Richard Garlick. Tim Lewis is <clears throat> overseeing it. He's reporting it up to Josh Cronkey And to some extent, Stan, I would imagine, that Vinay is across everything that's happening. And that when a decision is taken, the entire club is sort of rowing in the same direction towards the same goals. And that's how you get... I think that's the only way you get at Arsenal anyway, A 100 million pound plus signing approved, by the way. Um, and so I think that you know, the direction has been good and it's it involved everything, right? Like trying to get the ticketing process improved and trying to get the, mm. the stadium experience improved and you know, working on the redevelopment even of the Emirates Stadium, right? And the artwork around the Emirates. All of this, I think, is reflects some joined up thinking. And you look at Manchester United and I think you see a club in disarray, right? The Glazers out to lunch, <clears throat> not particularly caring, money being spent. To show that money is being spent, but not with any mm. particular direction, managers coming and going, no real sporting director overseeing things, a lot of player power, a lot of agent power, even the manager's agent exerting power. And so having a strong member of the board who who owns the football operation, who will put a stop to that and create a breaking point from the old habits and the start of new habits and put into place people who have the responsibility to... Maybe the marginal gains aren't you know things like oh we we're going to eat less of this and sleep more of you know more of that but maybe it's marginal gains in terms of we're going to have a person responsible for this and that person is going to mm-hmm. own that we're going to have a person responsible for this and we're going to keep agents out of that and we're going to you know we're going to have a five year plan and instead of trying to fix it in one window we're going to have you know Mikel famously talked about five phases right to to the point if you try to fix a football club in one window you will break a football club Arsenal football club tried for many windows to just put sticking plasters on a broken project to try to get back into the top four. And that mm. dragged us down to eighth. right? Mm. We stopped that. We ripped off the sticking plasters and built a five-phase a five phase project that's working. So it'd be interesting to see if that happens. What I can't decide is, will Brailsford be the guy who comes into the room and gives the big speech and tries to make all the decisions and wants to affect change quickly and show that he knows everything and actually because he's more of a dilettante is, is unable to do that, mm. you know, or will he create a culture of accountability, a focus on winning, be a leader who delegates to people who are specialists. And if he does that, if he simply comes in and says, every single thing we do is going to be focused on winning and being the best, the best training ground, the best stadium, the Mm -hmm. best marketing, the best player acquisition, the best player training, the best management. If he instills that culture and then brings in the best people to do it, then I think you got a problem because I think that that's how you succeed at United much in the same way that that's how we've succeeded at Arsenal, or or are you know on the trajectory to success, depending on whether you yeah. consider where we are so far success. Does that makes sense. Yeah,
2: it, it's going to be interesting. I, I don't think the um, Ten Hag is going to last very long. Is my sense. Um, it might. Be I think the real. results will will force yeah. that, and
1: ultimately, I think you need a reset of the player culture too, because you can't have so many expensively acquired players on the fringes. Now, you could argue well, Mikel did the same thing, and it was in the benefit of the club. But, like, he's acquired some of the players that are on the fringes, Mm. so I don't really understand it, you
2: know? Yeah, yeah. Um, At the the urging, at the prompting of of his agent, apparently. Um, Mm. But it will be interesting to see. This might be one sign, one sort of um, sign that we should be concerned if United, for their next manager, if they appoint uh, someone who is young and maybe quite kind of impressionable, pliable, or moldable, um, in the same way that, you know, Niece's. Fortunes have turned around um, now that they've they've appointed this 32-year-old Italian uh, Farioli, Francesco Farioli, and um, he came from kind of nowhere. He was a sort of goalkeeping goalkeeping coach, I think at Sassuolo, and then he went to Turkey and was successful there. Um, but maybe for Dave Brailsworth's purposes of creating a new culture, that will be much easier to do with a young coach in their first big job. Um, And and to get that sort of joined up thinking that you're talking about, um, Mm. that's more sort of plausible than bringing in someone like a Ten Hag with their own kind of apparatus, their own reputation, their own ego, agent, and so on and so forth, um, which, again... My experience of football and how football clubs work is is limited, but I can imagine that that's more difficult and it would be more difficult for someone like Dave Brailsford coming from the outside towards whom there might already be some skepticism in the football world.
1: Mm. Uh, Do you have time to, to carry on just a bit more? Yeah, go for it. So, so the funny thing is we've spent most of this time talking Brailsford, and I think that's yep. important because I think Brailsford will probably have the largest influence over the sporting aspects of Manchester United uh, reporting up to Ratcliffe, but I think that it'll be Brailsford that makes a lot of decisions. But he does have, I guess you'd call it a partner on that board, and you know that is um, Jean-Claude Blanc. And Jean-Claude Blanc does have experience at the highest levels of football. Uh, he was with Juventus after the Calciopoli scandal when they were in Syria Bay and Syria B, Syria Bay, I don't know. Um, and he I've just I've just thrown like a a French accent on that for for reasons <laughs> I can't fully explain, um, as as a non-Italian speaker. But um, he did oversee them coming back up, you know, winning the league, uh, really a return to glory for Juve. But as I understand it, he was more on the Marketing side; that mm. he was more over the commercial aspects of the club. Um, had some involvement with PSG as well. Mm. So he's been in these big fishbowl uh, sporting operations, footballing operations at the at the highest level. So that will not be new to him. But I wonder whether you think his influence will extend to the footballing aspect specifically, or will be more about commercial partnerships and the marketing side of things.
2: I think it will be more in the business side. I mean, everything mm. you read and hear about him, Jean Claude. Uh, Blanc is sort of glowing. Um, everyone talks in very um, sort of affectionate, admiring terms about him. I mean, I read one interview with someone who'd worked with him in L'Equipe um, earlier today, and they referred to him as the Lionel Messi of the of sports business. Um, and that's, yeah, and that's pretty sort of universal. As you said, I mean, he works in the French tennis federation. He actually works in the Tour de France organization as well. Um, and was at PSG for 10 years. But I see him certainly more on the business side. I mean, maybe more their equivalent of V9, for example, at Arsenal. Mm.
1: That's, I mean, it's a bit worrying, I guess, to have someone that's whose reputation is mm. that lauded. But at the same time, Manchester United have never had trouble earning money. That's, that's not the problem, right? The problem isn't finding sponsorships. The problem isn't earning money. I think the business will be run well. The, the question is, Will the football business be run well? And, and if Blanc gets them earning even more money, I guess you could say that's even more money for them to spend. But I don't get the sense that spending has been the problem at United. I mm-hmm. imagine there'll be even more spending now, but I don't I don't think that's what's held them back. I mean, you can look at Chelsea, and you only have to look at Chelsea, first of all, to laugh, but to mm-hmm. also see that historic spending can still go wrong if mm-hmm. the, the thinking that underpins it is not... Uh, reasonable, aligned, sophisticated, knowledgeable—you know, whatever adjective you want to put in there—that that underscores their incompetence. Mm-hmm. So, I guess as as sort of a wrap up to this, with everything you've seen from Ineos ownership of other football clubs, you know, involvement in sport at the cycling level, with everything you've seen from Brailsford, if if it is as we think that Brailsford will be the dominant personality at Manchester United now from a footballing performance standpoint, and and. Ratcliffe and Ineos will be the ones really running the football operation. Give me your sort of range of outcomes expectation for the <laughs> next 5 years at Manchester United, not in terms of where they finish in the table, but in terms of how you expect to see this turning out because I remember I was quite worried about Todd Bully taking over at Chelsea for example because mm. the biggest thing we thought he'd do was just spend. Well, he mm. did, but it turns out he's quite bad at it or at least so far. Yeah. So what are what are your hopes and dreams? of of a calamity at United and fears of a success there with, with this takeover.
2: Yeah, I mean, again, to sort of put it in Arsenal terms or um, terms that Arsenal fans might be able to relate to, you know, I can imagine a series of sort of appointments from Brailsford, um overseen by Brailsford, of the sort of ilk of Sven Mislintat, when you read, you know, you read about their record and you read about how they're sort of rethinking a paradigm, you're you're either very impressed or, and excited if you're a fan of that team, or quite scared if you're a fan of another team. However, three, four months, or six months, or a year down the line, you find out that this individual is impossible to get on with, or they're a snake oil salesman, and they have to start again. And you know, I think in football. The, the volatility of the whole environment and the pressure, particularly from fans, but also the media, it just amps, well, it just, um, um, uh, the the, the stakes are just so high on all of that and it it makes it even harder for those individuals to succeed and to put in a a sort of really kind of an innovative, um, strategy that requires some time to mature. Um, so, you know, there could be a series of those appointments, maybe some left field signings, a left field management manager appointment, and, um, it could all, and it could all be disastrous. This time, the relationship between Ratcliffe and Brailsford may be fractures and. Um, finally Ratcliffe no longer is saying in interviews which he sort of still says that Browsford is the number one you know operator in the world when it comes to creating a sporting culture now you know he no longer really believes in the Browsford hype Brailsford's kicked mm. out and someone else comes in and Man United is still where they are today sort of 6th, 7th in the league um, or it could be sort of Arsenal-Mageddon and um, Man United <laughs> Man United um, rescale you know their former heights um, and they are, you, you know, yeah. everything is kind of admired about not not so much on the, on the financial side, but everything is admired about Man City and you know what they've done. Um, it's sort of sporting director front, and that uh, you know that's that's what's said and that's what's admired about Man, uh, about Manchester United. That could also happen.
1: Interesting, really, really fascinating. I certainly hope that it's more the former than the latter <clears throat> in terms of those outcomes. What's good though is I, I, I had a little bit of concern just reading around and some of the some of the things that people have been saying about this. I think you've given me a viewpoint, a more expansive viewpoint in terms of the error bars on this, so to speak. Mm. You know, the the range of outcomes is maybe wider than people think. And it certainly sounds to me like Brailsford could succeed, but could be a calamitous flop, um, you mm. know, depending on his involvement the degree to which he tries to take this on all by himself and, and prove a point. So we'll see um, Also, just, how it goes. just
2: mm-hmm. One final footnote, uh, Elliot, the, uh, the sort of belief in the cycling media landscape is this, this drift away from the cycling team towards OGC Nice. This definitely coincided with, um, well, the, the kind of drip drip of stories about the sort of doping allegations and so on and so forth. And this was over three or four years. And he, he, well, he, we used to have a very sort of well, regular interchange with him. or so sort of almost daily at big races. You would talk to him, you know, on and off the record. And he was very sort of personable, very affable. And he started to almost kind of literally start hiding. Um, he would stay in the team bus, never come out, never talk to us. And then he disappeared completely and went away to Nice. Now, there will be a, a lot of dredging up of these stories over the next few weeks. Um, and there, there are some journalists particularly on British broadsheets who worked on those stories at the time, who were still working and for whom um, the idea of well, sort of exposing someone or something is even more kind of exciting and palatable when it's, man united and it's football um so that might be quite that might be very difficult for him to negotiate Um, because he is someone who likes talking about his what he's doing what he's trying to do his ideas about sports his sort of natural habitat is talking to journalists and telling people about what he's doing um however he's not going to be able to do that because i think he's he definitely still has that sheepishness about the whole saga and how it ends Hmm. well the team sky ended and what happened with Bradley Wiggins and so forth. So that's going to be just from my point of view as sort of, um, maybe to get a little bit kind of meta, um, that's going that's to be interesting. That's going to be interesting to, to observe, um, what kind of public profile public sort of persona, um, he
1: has. That's, um, <clears throat> that is really interesting. I, I will watch this with eager anticipation of their collapse, uh, <laughs> And, and future dissolution. Um, also, you know, will be interesting to see the extent to which the Glazers cast a shadow over this at all. But, it, you know, mm-hmm. it it's a lot of change for a club that needs change and hopefully it'll just be change that amplifies the direction they've been heading and that, that would be fine with me. Um, I have kept you so much longer than I intended uh, and then we, that what well, we had agreed upon. So um, this will now be its own standalone episode, which is great. Um, I, I can't thank you enough uh, for the time. I, I definitely would love to talk to you just about Arsenal uh, in the future if you'd, if you'd come on. It'd be a pleasure. And uh, I hope people will listen to your cycling podcast. I hope people will um, read your books. I, I would say engage with you on on social media, but let's be honest, that's increasingly less enjoyable. Not you, not you not specifically, but the yeah. platforms themselves. Uh, although you can find them on Twitter at Freebos. And, and Daniel, it's, a, it's such a pleasure to talk to you again. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you so much.
1: All right, we're going to leave it there. Um, yeah, as I said, so from perfect. from a segment to a to a full episode and so i can say with pleasure uh we love you and we will talk to you after well so all right let me just be clear i'm gonna say the west ham game because that's what i'm recording this if you're listening to this when this comes out it's probably going to be the fulham game so we love you and we'll talk to you after arsenal 10 west ham nil and arsenal 10 fulham